Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about topics such as what creates peace, how do we measure it, and why do we need it, and also how can we rethink peace by analyzing the attitudes, institutions, and structures required to create and sustain peaceful societies. Our guest is Steve Killele. Steve is a businessman, global philanthropist, and peace builder. He founded the Institute for Economics and Peace, an independent, not-for-profit global research institute analyzing the intertwined relationships between business, peace, and economic development. He is also the founder of the Global Peace Index that measures global peacefulness, ranking 163 countries and independent territories. Steve is also the author of Peace in the Age of Chaos, the best solution for a sustainable future. He has been recognized as one of the world's 100 most influential people on reducing the onset of armed violence and currently serves on the President's Circle for Club de Madrid, the largest forum of Democratic former presidents and prime ministers working to strengthen democracy. In 2010, Steve was appointed a member of the Order of Australia for his service to the community through the global peace movement, and in 2016 was awarded the Luxembourg Peace Prize. Welcome, Steve, to the Think Peace podcast. Great to be here. It's great to have you. So let's let's launch in. I'm curious how you got focused on the issue of peace. Your background currently is, um, or more recently, was in the area of business and now philanthropy around peace. How did that come together in your life? Well, Colette, it's like most things in my life, it, it sort of came about through accident. And if I look at my life, most of it was never planned. And the big things in my life just seemed to evolve from the things I was doing. It was no different with peace. Never really thought about it too much. So if we look at my background, I started off in business, established two international IT companies. First one ended up publicly listed on NASDAQ. And the second one on the Australian Stock Exchange. And so I accumulated quite a bit of money out of that. And from there, I established a family foundation to work with the poorest of the poor. And so that's done about, oh, I guess, two, over 220 projects now globally. At any one time, we've got about 30 going on. And the direct beneficiaries about 3.6 million people. So reasonable size. But working with the poorest of the poor took me into a whole lot of conflict zones, war zones, near-post war zones and such. And it would have been maybe 17 years ago now, maybe a bit less, 16 years. I was in northeast Kivu in the Congo, which is more, one of the more violent places in the world. And I was wandering through there and I started to think, what are the most peaceful nations in the world? And was there anything I could learn from them which I could bring into the projects I was doing? And it was really a fantasy question, like, you know, that we have them all the time fantasy question, get home, search the internet, and we'll see what we can see. And so I've got home, searched the internet, and I couldn't find a list of the nations of the world by their peacefulness. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. But that creates a fairly profound question, doesn't it? 
because of a simple business guy like myself is walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done, then how much do you know about peace? If you can't measure it, can you truly understand it? And if you can't measure it, how do you even know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? You simply don't. And from there, it was pretty much an entrepreneurial story of how sort of the Institute developed and the Global Peace Index. Well, it's interesting because what you were making a um, connection when you were walking around in the DRC is development and peace. And in some way, then I'm tying it back to where you have your indicators and economics, you're, you're tying those together. Can you kind of walk through how in your mind or from what you experienced, those strands came together as being connected? Oh, gee, yeah, that's a, it's, so yes, it's certainly we all understand that sort of the development gets affected by the conflict and we can all see the various indicators like education, uh, health, uh, a whole range of other things, availability of water. When you get conflict, it lessens them. But now this is quite striking, but we've just launched last week a report called Ecological Threat Report. And what it does is it looks at the ecological threats around the world, looks at resilience of countries, and then sort of ranks them according to their likelihood of being violently impacted. What was profound was the relationship between ecological damage and conflict. So just to drive it home, 11 of the 15 countries with the worst ecological threats are all in conflict. The other four are on our watch lists. Hmm. Now, we look at the countries with the uh, worst ecological threat, and we, damage, you can say, is pretty much equivalent. And then we look at the resilience of those countries, and we have a thing called positive piece to measure that. Uh, so that's the resilience or, or the strength of the institutions and the attitudes within the country. And they, they, we call low resilience countries. So now we combine those two together and we end up with 30 hotspot countries. But just to drive this home again, 28 of those 30 countries in the bottom half of the Global Peace Index. So you've got this massive nexus between ecological degradation and conflict. And I, even after 17 years of doing this and understanding it, I didn't realise how strong the connection was. So the country with the worst score on the ecological degradation is Afghanistan, just to put it into perspective. So if you went down the list, these 30 hotspot countries, countries like Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Nigeria, Niger, just to name a few. So so what hit me is and there's this vicious cycle going on, I think, and it's sort of the, uh, we, we, we think in systems terms here at the Institute for Economics and Peace, so I like to talk in cycles or virtuous vicious cycles. So there's this vicious cycle going on, and I think in some of these places, it's probably been going on for centuries, you get the ecology gets damaged, that creates conflict, that further degrades the ecology and now you've got a vicious cycle. And sometimes it breaks, you might get more rains at different stages or peace deals done. But once you come back and you've got to, you, you, scarce resources and people fighting over the resources, 
they fall back along the old fault lines, which quite often can be ethnic or religious or some other sort of cultural division. And so you get these vicious cycles. Opposite of it, and we like quite often like to study the positive, but again, like this interview, we get sucked into the negative all the time. And for a whole lot of reasons, I'm sure we'll start to explore further in the podcast. So in, in systems thinking, for example, it's a concept of attractor plane. So that's where entities get attracted to a different place, and it's very hard for them to get from it. So when you're looking in the global piece, there are two attractor planes. One is at the bottom of the index, and we all understand and have heard about the conflict trap. And the other, surprisingly, it's the top end. So once countries get into the top, very top or the very bottom of the index, it's very hard for them to escape. So not many countries in the life we've been doing this, which is now 15 years, we've seen now high peace countries have dramatic falls in peace. And similarly, low peace countries take a long while to actually get out of these conflict traps when they do. Okay, so let's want to break it down to clarify when you talk about some of the countries that have been at the high level, and you mentioned it's hard to to stay there, they're starting to slip. Can you give us an example of what are some of those countries that are now starting to have some slippage? Oh, the ones at the ones at the oh. top. No, no, none of them have really, really slipped much. That, that, that's 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 the interesting. Oh, that's what you're thing. saying. Okay, you're saying that they're yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, and that's what I mean by attractor plane. Once you get there, you. So this is really built into a, what we see as the attitude, institution, structures within the society. Once they're in, it's like creates this virtuous cycle. But what we would say is a lot of these underlying factors in the Western democracies are slipping. So, for example, the US, where you reside, mm-hmm. it's a, what we call a, a high peace country. But in terms of these measures of a, a, a positive peace, it's actually had the 10th largest drop in the world in the last uh, yeah, decade, okay? So, and so what, and so, so when you look at it, it's a, look at it, you can unpack it to attitudes, institutions, and structures. So if you look at structures, so they're things like per capita income, uh, a life expectancy, education rates, they're, they're pretty much all improving. They're pretty much improving everywhere around the world. Mm-hmm. Institutions, they come down to sort of government structures and things like that, uh, maybe rule of law, not so much, okay? They're fairly balanced and in some ways sort of have slipped. But attitudes is the thing which has come right off. So let's say, so this, and this is true across most of the Western democracies, but particularly true in the States, let's say. And so they're things like group grievances, and you're going to relate to this really quite well, group grievances, Fractionalised elites, that's where the elites fight amongst themselves. That would have been epitomised by your last uh, uh, federal election. Uh, There'd be measures of the uh, uh, political democracy, measures of democracy, measures of free flow of information, in many ways epitomised by free press. Uh, They've been declining. uh, Perceptions of corruption, I will stress perceptions. Perceptions of corruption are on the increase, as is misinformation. So they're some of the things. And, they, and so these all come out of a system. So it's a lot of the time we have a tendency, and this is our view of the world anyway. Mm-hmm. So quite often we have this tendency to view things and say, oh, we've got misinformation. What's the cause of the misinformation? Well, 
let's stop the people who are spreading the misinformation from spreading it. But a lot of the time, these things come back to a systemic issue, and it's a whole system which comes together that generate the, uh, these outcomes. And I think quite often we're always looking for cause and effect and trying to solve the problem that way. So let's, can you um, just recap the categories again that your institute studies as, as the indicator? Like you said, would you, if you can't measure something, then you can't fully understand. Sure. So what are those things so that you're measuring? We've got a whole range of things. So I've just been speaking on a concept called positive peace, attitudes, institutions, and structures which create and sustain a peaceful society. However, we do have measures of terrorism and the Global Peace Index, which is where we started, uh, it's got a different definition, a different set of measures. So the uh, Global Peace Index is what's termed a negative measure of peace. So it's the absence of violence or fear of violence. And so it has three domains uh, within it. So those domains are uh, internal safety and security, and that'll be things like your people in prison, uh, the homicide rate, violent crime rate, state-sponsored terror on its citizens, uh, you know, people incarcerated, uh, number of police, et cetera, et cetera. That's one domain, safety and security. Then you've got ongoing conflict, and then you've got militarization. Now, the thing with positive peace, and we probably talk about this a bit during this interview, so we arrive that empirically. So having the Global Peace Index, which tells you the state of violence within the world but it and how it's changing and moving and, in what, and on what dimensions, but it doesn't tell you how to create peace, does it? Yeah, exactly. So we know that, the level of violence, but that doesn't help you then understand, okay, then what is it that we might want to focus on um, for peace? It's not the, as, as I think you had mentioned in um, your book, you had talked about it's not just the opposite um, of, of violence. Exactly, exactly. So with the positive piece, we've got about 50,000 different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys. So we take them, we do statistical analysis to work out what the factors are most closely associated with peace. Uh, then we do further statistical analysis to clump them into different groups. And that comes out as an eight-part topology, which we call the pillars. Mm -hmm. Now we can take that and put that background into another index where the strength of the, uh, uh, the, ind or the, the strength of each of the indicators is based on the uh, strength of the correlation. So what we've got now is something which is empirically derived, uh, but it's not really any of our, yeah, our ideas and thoughts. It's not what I think creates peace or any of the researchers which create peace. And that's what makes it powerful. So now if you take this concept positive peace and now turn it into an index, now you can get the momentum of countries whether they're moving in the, yeah, in the direction they're going. Are they moving in a vicious cycle? Are they moving in a virtuous cycle? Or are they just bouncing around somewhere in the middle? Now, also, when you take this concept, positive peace, and you now can, when you put it into index, compare it to other things. So, for example, countries which are improving in positive peace have 2% per annum higher GDP growth rate than countries which are deteriorating. You'll also find it's a great measure of resilience. Uh, and so countries which are high in positive peace have less civil resistance movements. They last for a shorter amount of time. They're more moderate in their aims. 
much more likely to achieve their aims and are far, far, far less violent. It's also associated with higher measures of well-being and happiness, better performance on the ecology, particularly in relation to food, water and population. So in many ways, what we say is positive peace creates an optimal environment in which human potential can flourish. That's very interesting. And I'm curious, with the factors that go into positive peace, is there any point where certain factors become more important if it's higher or lower, or is it a collective type of? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it, it does vary. We're getting down to individual situations. It does get more complex. So if we're looking at those eight pillars, for example, they're all of them at the top end, they're really important, okay? You've got to have them all strong to be a really high peace country. However, at the bottom end, if you're looking into, let's say, countries stuck in a conflict trap or in the high levels of conflict, you start to see corruption in functioning of government, particularly through your rule of law and group grievances, the things which become really important. Interesting. So at the lower yeah. level, certain things may give you a little bit of gas or jump up of yeah. coming up or staying there. But once yeah. you're at the top level, you really need to kind of keep your, you know, your system yeah. strong across the pillars. Yeah, yeah. But we, 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 so we, yeah, so sometimes you can focus on equitable distribution resources uh, or education. Not so important if you're looking in the high conflict places. However, if you now want to not run the risk of falling back in, they're the kind of things you do need to start to focus on over time. Yeah, and let's focus on that for a moment. Going back to your example, the United States, where certain factors have slipped, even though its status is still up in the higher tiers, because as you mentioned, it's harder to fall down once you're up there. But what are we looking at from your experiences of the areas that are starting to slip and what what might that mean over time or, or the status of staying in that high position though it's harder to leave it once you're up it? Um, sure. but what we might be looking at in that way. So, okay, so let's look at things like group grievances. Uh, let's look at uh, corruption. Uh, you know, we'll say perceptions of corruption. And obviously when you look at the election campaigns in the US, they cost an awful lot of money to be able to finance and think the rest of the world finds it staggering that you can spend tens of billions of dollars on an election campaign. And so people don't give that kind of money without expecting something back in return. And we can all see the size of the lobby industry in the Beltway around Washington, for example. Okay. So the more you increase the money going into all those kind of things, the less likely you're going to get effective government. More the elites fight amongst themselves. And now sort of it's more about sort of improving their own power base and at the expense of the country, the more likely the country is to run down. Group grievances do result in a lot more demonstrations, a lot more friction within society. And then in all sorts of different ways, you get it's a lot harder to get agreement because both sides of those group grievances feel they're justified in their positions, even though there can be a whole lot of inequities involved from one side towards the other. Yeah, so it's interesting. So those start to become a more important factor on whether positive peace um, 
Yeah, really look, the, yeah, so it, the whole thing works as a system. I'll give you an example. Like, it's just it's a pretty simple example, but it drives it home. So if we think about three of the pillars, let's say, uh, oh, corruption, seeing I'm talking about corruption, well-functioning government, uh, yeah, free flow of information, and free flow of information will say it's epitomised by a free press. Does government, does legislation affect corruption? Or does corruption affect the way the government operates? Similarly, does corruption reflect the free flow of information, what the press says, or does the press form the opinions of what people think about corruption? And similarly, does government have the ability to regulate the press about what it has to say and do, or does the press change the government and the kind of regulations and rules it's likely to put up. You can't pull any of it apart, can you? So I'll hit something really, which I think is really quite profound, okay? It's a little, little bit complex, but I'll, I'll hit it anyway. Well, so, go for it. And, and we, can always, uh, we can always pull it apart to, to break them into pieces if we need to. Sure. Okay. And it's, it's basic concept of systems. It's really quite a basic level. So if we look at the uh, empiricism, great. It, like we've got massive breakthroughs. Look at our modern society today. But it's based around the study of the physical world, okay, and cause and effect. So in the physical world, you have a cause which has an effect, but the effect doesn't influence the cause. It's a bit like taking a ball, throwing it into the air, it'll always fall at the same pace. That means we can catch it. Now, when we look at that, it comes out of the concept of empiricism. So you could now have an experiment where you've got a cause and effect and you can measure it. Now, anyone can repeat that experiment and understand it. And that was the way knowledge came about. And there's a whole lot of principles built into this. So that's the first thing. Second thing is when we start to look at it, uh, you can take something and break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller parts to understand it. Like take a clock apart, put it back together again. Take a car engine apart, put it back together again. And so the physical world was built about dissecting things down into small and smaller areas. So we end up with just all these areas of specialisation. Think of a university. It's broken down into department after department after department with specialisation after specialisation after specialisation. Now we'll come back to systems. So... The first principle of the system is the sum of the, the system is more than the sum of its parts. So I want you to think about your consciousness. Your consciousness is much more than the sum of your sum of the parts of your body, isn't it? Pretty obvious. Also, when you're looking at cause and effect, it's a mirage because in systems, the effect comes back and tries to influence the cause. And there's a lot of subtleties built up around this, but just a simple example, I uh, think of two political parties. One puts out a manifest, the other responds, cause, effect, and then that comes back to try and influence the, influence the cause. That's the first political party, which now adjusts its positions based on the responses of the prior one. So you've got these mutual feedback loops going on. It gets a lot more complicated than that, but you've got concepts of encoded norms, path dependency. We probably won't get too far into that. But what I'm trying to say is that the whole our structures are built around this empiricism. 
So you look at the way a government functions, it's cause and effect. So if we look at President Trump and the election of President Trump, a lot of people would say, okay, there's an effect. What was the cause? Let's try and address the root cause. But in systems, the events really are just a flow, a byproduct of the relationships and flows within the system. And that's when we come back to positive peace and you start to look at the systemic approach and use these eight lenses we've got to try and understand the way a system is structured and how you want to change it. Yeah, when you were, when you were describing that, a couple thoughts came to mind. One is, as you mentioned, the way our schools are structured, the way even government or even aid is structured. It's all flowing more from this kind of separateness rather than we know in, real, in life that nature and interactions and things we do don't flow, as you mentioned, in these parts that are separate. And I look back to why there's a resistance to looking at the system and I could think of just a couple things from being a peace building practitioner or just a government person or a human. One is to some, it could be threatening because this is your piece of the pie. This is a thing you know. And to have something you either don't know or, or work with others could be threatening to your status or to your funding, or even just it's hard to, come to understand, or that's just what you learned. So I'm not even say threat in a way that sometimes we consciously think of it. So we have a resistance just naturally sometimes to looking at the system. And the other thing is more of the complexity of the system, which is sometimes what leads people to break it down into little pieces or have, you know, universities with all of these disciplines. So how have you grappled with trying to promote a positive piece or trying to change this or shift the way our attitudes or shift our approaches in the field of peace building or anything, even with ecology or economics, because it's also intertwined. How does one help humans shift so that we can look at it as a system if that's the way things are anyway? Yeah, now look, I think that's very good. And yes, I agree with every, everything you said. And so there's a concept in systems called homeostasis. Every system's always trying to get to a steady state, but they also modify over time. And so a lot of the time built within the systems, all these checks and balances, which means changing, it's very, very hard. So what are we doing? And look, when we talk about changing the world, it's a huge task. No one individual can, is really going to get up there and change the world. And I'm certainly not going to be me. However, to create change, one needs to propagate your ideas. And that's why I'm on this show talking now. That would be one small part of it. We also sort of, with our product launches, they put a lot of marketing behind them. So last year, we look at globally, we had 27 billion media impressions from about 14,000 different articles globally. So media is another way to do it. The work we've got now is included in the, the, the probably uh, thousands of different university courses around the world. And sort of been so a positive piece people like and resonated with it. We've had organize, a lot of organisations pick up on it and using it. So an example would be Rotary uh, International. That's the largest civil organisation in the world. It's rolling it out through its 34,000 clubs around the world. It's, it's a, the major, it's, it's major uh, initiative for peace. Uh, so there'd be another example. Gee, we've got 
So the terrorism work we do, because we bring the positive piece into everything, uh, that's picked up a whole range of different organisations which are working on the countering terrorism in different parts of the world. Uh, that'd be that'd be some that'd be, that'd be some other areas where it's at. Uh, World Trade Organization are creating a peace department. Uh, they're very very interested in this work and are looking at that. So I think the concept of systems thinking is getting from a societal perspective is getting more and more resonance. But it's really new. We're right. It's at the dawn of a new age of study. I think, and it's and it is systemic in nature and uh, I know sort of from your angle Colette you're very interested in the neurosciences that's in there too it's all there but to give you an idea of just how difficult all this is so we think of our human beings we've got this concept of cause and effect in a physical world just built in deeply into our subconscious that's how we walk down the street through a physical effect we understand so it's Countering it in our subconscious is tough. How we've survived so, and how we've learned what's okay and what's yeah. not okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that cause and effect, like for the very simplistic thing, it means that the, the lion roars, I run. Yeah, exactly. Fight and flight. <laughs> now, just to give you an idea of the international level, the difficulty with this. So let's look at the UN. And the UN does a lot of great work. Okay. So this isn't a massive overarching criticism of the UN. But, well, let's think of the Sahel, okay? And that's probably one of the hotspot areas in the world at the moment and will be into the future. Now, if we look at that, so you've got military operations going on there, but you've got a whole lot of the Islamic militants who are loyal to al-Qaeda, an Islamic state. You've got some of the worst ecological degradation going on. You've got countries with the highest population growth in the world. For example, Niger is expected to increase its population by 161% in the next 30 years. You've got the lack of water. You've got a lack of adequate food. You've got some of the highest malnutrition and food insecurity rates in the world. Now, Let's look at the UN and the way it tackles it. So you've got UNHCR looking at the refugees from the problem problems. You've got UNDP, which now works on aspects of development. Uh, but even then, when you look at it, it's siloed. So you've got WASH programs, for example. You've got the UN Population Fund, which works on the population side of it. You might have the FAO, which works on the agricultural side of it. You'll have other people who now try and work on sort of stimulating some business in those kind of environment. And then you've got the military, uh, which is really right off on the side again, involved in all of this. So if the nature of the problem is systemic, and these are wicked problems, the nature of the problem is systemic, you're not gonna solve the problem unless you've got an integrated operation which thinks systemically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think about, you know, when you were saying that I flashbacks of conversations way back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I was, you know, working in Kosovo, and I remember, or any of the countries since then, even in my, the own, my own organization that I worked with for many years, a federal agency focused on peace. And even if people talked about it's a system or talked about the need for integration, or a whole of government, the UK for many years was trying to look at a whole of government and trying to implement this, it became so difficult because of the way the systems, the old systems have already been set up. It was almost inertia 
And then a little bit what we talked about before, it, it was just, it created conflict within organizations and territoriality and conflict. And so I love what you're talking about is it takes time to just get a new way of thinking, kind of educating or getting into the psyche and the organizations, the concept. So then I'm curious, what have you seen in ways that can be then helpful to get it, not just that it's known intellectually, but that the systems are structured around that because the systems we have now are structured in the old way that is is almost like rooted in a way that's going to not be systems thinking right. everything's set up to not do that so i'm just curious and i, I just want to think i want to say sometimes i think you know when setting up a rule of law systems knowing the systems we have were not structured that way but just like a system works when people try to get rid of it and start new we know that doesn't work you know, because, and, and so it's just how can, how, from your experiences, do we, after the education, after getting that embedded, how, what are the steps of small steps towards shifting these? Yeah. Look, that's, uh, look, that's a profoundly great question, okay? It's a profoundly great question. And really, it's very, very difficult. And I'll give a couple of answers back, but they're, just sort of answers. In my heart, I don't see how we're going to radically change the international systems quickly. Okay, so the change comes from a change from a shifting consciousness, and that shifting consciousness really lies within the people within a society, and then sort of change will follow from there. But certainly, as we get more and more of these wicked global problems, because they're systemic in nature we're going to find more and more thinking back. So let's come back and let's look at it through a, a ecological degradation perspective, okay? Like the Sahel's probably not a bad one. So we've mentioned it already. So what you can do is you can take major agencies like the UN and then they create another department. And then they second people with the expertise from all these other ones. So they're all unified in one agency. Now you pick an area, an area of focus, which you now focus on, and that could be part of a country, it may even spread over the borders of a couple of countries, because we know these, these issues don't really follow with geopolitical boundaries. And then what you do is you now map out using a systems thinking, what the system is and the way it's operating currently. So what are the encoded norms within the area of focus? What is the path dependency? What's the, what's the cultural path the societies along? And other such things. What is, the, what is the homeostasis? Okay. What is the intent? Most systems, most things have intents and nations have intent, that's for sure. Uh, so you've mapped that out and now you design your interventions around what you can see from that. So they're systemic, but you've got one integrated agency. So you've got a rule of a form of command. So it's all integrated, strategic, using systems approaches after understanding the problem from a systemic perspective. Yeah. So that's, that's one way you'd see it. Now, another way, one of the ways we're also implementing this is in terms of the, how can I put it, uh, the community level. So you can take these eight pillars of positive peace because there's a lot of thought behind them. And it's, this gets pretty simplistic, but it works. 
So you can use it to take any sort of ordinary, let's say, developmental project and look at it so it becomes more systemic. And at the same time, you're introducing this concept of systemic thinking at a very localised and small problem area and also bringing in concepts of peace. So there's a, a lot of wisdom in it. And so with so a lot of the time, so I'll give you one example. This came out of a Rotary Club in uh, Uganda. So they had a literacy project in a school and they've been running it for a couple of years with and without any really improvement. And it was in a rural area and it was a really, really, uh, really poor area. I mean, really poor. And so they, they came in and the guy who was running it after doing a couple of courses with us, uh, he said, well, let's look at it using uh, the eight pillars of positive peace and see what the interventions we can do for each of the pillars are. And can you just, um, just to recap, can you refresh our memory of all of the eight pillars? that you sure okay okay so you've got things like well-functioning government a strong business environment equal distribution of resources acceptance of the rights of others good relationships with neighbors low levels of corruption equitable distribution of the resources and high levels of human capital i may have repeated one of them twice but that's my memory that sounds beautiful too and just as an aside when you were talking about just introducing those concepts into a project or in a system has a certain effect because these are potentially concepts that had never been kind of thought about in that way when we've atomized things and gone in on one topic you know, literacy exactly yeah yeah so exactly exactly starting a change in consciousness in a way yeah exactly exactly so this project they did there uh, at the end of it they were able to take the scholastic performance where 30 percent of the students were getting in the top two top two uh, grades in the division that rose to 60 percent and the enrollment at the school went from something like 240 students to 840 students now how did that come about? So when they take these eight lenses, well, well-functioning government, they then decided to involve a couple of the elders in the community and then sort of the teachers in the school to get them on board with what they're going to do. They then looked at free flow of information. So created a relationship with the local radio station to talk about what they're doing, which became important a bit further on. Uh, they, but the two interventions which made a big difference, and the first one was acceptance of the rights of others. And so a lot of the girls weren't coming to school four days a month because they were menstruating. So they gave them pads, sanitary pads, and then separate toilet yeah, 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 facilities for them. And that then sort of made them, rather than sort of getting despondent and, and just moving out of school at a fairly young age, they got in interested, stayed on, and their scholastic performance improved. The thing which made the big difference, none of this is counterintuitive, but you'd never get at it with a simple literacy project, was good relationships with neighbours. Because what was happening was at lunchtime, the kids were going out and raiding uh, all the fruit trees in the neighbours' yards because it was in a rural setting. And so in these incredibly poor environments, every apple every orange is, is considered important. So what they did was they planted some fruit trees in the yard of the school. And then they provided a porridge feeding program at lunchtime. And so this cost cents, just literally cost cents per student. 
Now, what happened was the kids have now got the nutritional value in them so their minds don't fade in the afternoon. They can keep the concentration up, proved the scholastic performance massively. Now, what also happened is they've now got out and put it out on the radio. It's got out that there are free meals at schools. A lot more parents now are sending the kids to school because they know it's one less meal they have to provide for. And so this is an example of something working at a community level. And so you can take the same approach for any sort of different developmental project. It gives you a lens to more holistically understand the intervention you're doing from a systemic nature. But just to pull this back up into a much more broader picture, one of the things which came out of this ecological threat report we've just done is if you're looking globally, the levels of food insecurity are increasing. They've risen 44% since 2014. So if we looked at there have been a decades-long trend of food insecurity improving. Since 2014, it's been deteriorating every year. So it's 44% worse. That's 2.3 billion people globally now food insecure, and that's 30% of the world population. So if we now come back around to conflict, if we can't improve the very basics of nutrition, isn't that going to lead to more conflict? So one of the other things which came out of this, which was quite profound and needs a lot more research, is that in Africa, uh, on average, the malnutrition rates, if using a body weight index to measure it, is three times higher in males, which are 5 to 19, than females. Now, men commit, as we know, commit most of the violence, yet not enough is understood in these conflict settings about the relationship between lack of nutrition, brain development, poor brain development, and the ability to to control our emotions, particularly our violent ones, and how hunger actually acts as a motivator to going and joining militias. If you're hungry continually and you think joining a militia, you'll get good food, you'd have to think it's a motivator, but little research is done in those areas at all. And the ability moving forward to survive, to take care of yourself and your family as a basic motivator. Yeah, very much so. When you were looking, um, and I, I know your studies haven't looked specifically at this when we were talking earlier about kind of the top tier where there's strong positive peace measures, but certain indicators may slip. When we look at some of the countries that are up in up in that scale, and you mentioned, you know, for example, the United States was an example where certain indicators were slipping. Is there any forecast or from a systems perspective what that might mean for some of these as far as obviously its impact on the positive peace? Certain indicators may lower in certain areas that we talked about. But what about you know, larger impacts on society. We have a model for being able to predict large falls in peace, and it's a pretty good model. So uh, obviously we've got only 15 years worth of data, so it's, a, it's not like it's a, a, a we've now got it over 50 or 100 years, but 15 years is not bad. So we're using, the me using a methodology where we look at the positive peace measures 
And then we look at the actual peace measures, which are done by the Global Peace Index. So if, you if the actual peace is much, much higher than the positive peace measures, in theory, then it shouldn't sustain that level of peace. And using that as a basis where you've got very big differences, we can get very high levels of accuracy in large falls in peace, looking, looking seven years to a decade into the future. And so that's good because that gives the ability now because you, you, the reality is you can't do much about an oncoming conflict if you've got three months' notice on it, as you probably learned at USIP. Yeah. does help. You can get mediation in there and you might be able to push it back a bit, but do something. You really need to be working on it for many, many years. And so using when this is called a positive peace deficit model, and if we're using that model, we can get the, uh, uh, a 70 to 90% success rate on forecasting large falls in peace, uh, depending on the number of entities we take. So the more, smaller the number of entities, the more accurate it is. So like, so for example, we got the, uh, taking the 20 countries with the biggest deficits, you get 70% accuracy, taking the, 10 countries with the biggest deficit, you get a 90% accuracy. So are you, so, yes. Yeah, so so it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good model, yeah. And using that model, what countries from both at the higher end of the positive piece and those at the lower end, where are you seeing things that would be of note? So Guinea-Bissau, Guinea that'd, that'd be up there. Haiti, okay, Haitman, you can see that since we've done this, Haiti, as you can see, has actually had falls in peace. So Haiti was another one we were, we were expecting to have the uh, yeah, strong falls in peace. That'd be an example. I think Nepal is fairly well up there as well. Uh, but the other thing you've got to build into it too is, is the positive piece improving? Because if it's improving at a, a reasonable rate, even though you've got a big deficit, you've, that deficit's decreasing and you've probably got a society which is, is when the citizens are feeling their lives are improving as well. So in that, there's a few things you need to take into account with this. Yeah, and you, you were mentioning kind of the change of consciousness that can also within the system kind of give a little bit of a bump, you know, as as the cycles yeah. come about. So we're talking big things here. Changing big things is not easy, and it's a gradual. But within systems, there's tipping points. So where are we? We're right in the early stages of something. So with systems thinking, you make a lot of the energy into different things without seeing much change. Then you get to a certain point, very small inputs can create massive changes. And once a system tips, it can't go back to what it was. So you can talk about America being great again, but you can't go back to a system of the past. And sure, America can be great in the future, but the future America will be a vast different America than the one in the past. Because once a system changes, it never goes back to what it was. And when you talk about a tipping point, does it work both ways, where it can be a tipping point um, to where positive yes. takes yep. off, or can it be yep. you fall off the cliff tipping point? Yes, <laughs> we, 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 we've, we've got all these different tipping points we discovered now. Uh, so G, GDP per capita is one example of a tipping point. Once you get through, a, you get small increases as you move out of, let's say, a conflict, the uh, situation, you move up through 
the lower levels and you get past about uh, halfway. And at that point, then there's a, it kicks in and you, know, you start to get very uh, strong increases in GDP as you start to get the, these factors in place. Because as you start to look at these eight pillars of positive peace, they're the things which create, create a thriving business environment, like lower levels of corruption, so free flow, free flow of information, that's transparency. You're just better on being able to price a transaction, okay? And for a publicly listed company, for example, if you're buying and selling in the share market, buying property. So things like that, equitable distribution resources, and that doesn't mean equal. It's, a, it's more of a social contract around what's equitable. So what a Swede thinks equitable, what American thinks is equitable, probably two quite different things. So it's more the social contract, but the, if you get more equitable distribution resources, it, it creates for a, you know, more demand in a consumer economy, which now stimulates business, doesn't it? Effective rule of law uh, that comes under well-functioning government. That's one of the stronger ones. That provides, trend, that provides more smoothness through the system. Corruption's pretty obvious. I think we all can see that. Good relationships with neighbours, they can be within the community or so within, let's say, a nation, or they can be well, external to nations as well. So the better your relationships with neighbouring states is the less money you need to spend on defence, the more money you've got now to spend on productive investment like infrastructure or stimulating business or social services, uh, which then in turn can reduce crime. And so you can start to see how it all starts to come together in its cyclic way. Yeah, and I think when you were talking about the tipping point, how it may be slow and it may feel like you're trudging through mud, you know, building piece by piece, you know, increasing the indicators, yet there could be a point where then you get a glide path or a tipping point that things really accelerate. accelerate. I also think it could work the other way, why it's also important to, to build them so that you don't get the glide path down, where as they erode without doing what needs to be done within the system to strengthen them, you may get to a point in a country where there's a quick um, drop off. So kind of votes for what you were talking about of working towards it um, and improving yeah. things overall. Now, de look, definitely. So the, the, these, the, these cycles work going either way. Uh, if you can see things slipping, then it's really important to focus on it. But it's also important to understand those three different domains and focus on the three different domains because when you pull them together, you can have one domain slipping, but you can have the overall a, a positive piece increasing. Absolutely. So I'd like to just ask you, is there anything that you feel, especially with, with the book that you wrote, um, Peace in the Age of Chaos. And I think, you know, it feels very chaotic right now. Um, it's probably, I mean, it's not as if historically there have not been chaotic periods of time, but it just seems with the pandemic, with COVID-19, with a lot of things around the world, there's, there are a lot of pockets of chaos. So I'm just curious, is there, is there anything that just really strikes you you mentioned already the report that came out the ecological report and just how important um those cycles are especially the degrading of of our um you know ecosystems but anything else yes look i think the main thing is like is we'll finish on a positive note and so we always 
me included, and even we did through this interview, we can move towards the negative again and again and again. And we have hit the positive in many different ways in this interview. So in a lot of ways, it's balanced. But we think we live in a chaotic world. And I hear, particularly in the peace building community, often conflict is on the increase. But if we look over the last decade, we had more countries improve in peace than deteriorate in peace. So we had 86 countries improve, while 75 deteriorated. Now, overall, peacefulness did deteriorate by 2%. That's because when you go into conflict, it's much easier to fall in peace than it is to improve in peace. So improving in peace is much more gradual. So there's a lot of things there which are, which are positives, which are positives. But quite, and when we look at the press, we get all our information from the press in some shape, way or form. Uh, well, not all our information, but a lot. It's built around the uh, focusing on the negative because it knocks up a more how can I, immediate emotion, okay? Immediate emotion. And the thing with peace in many ways, peace is a non-event. How do you report on a non-event? But the breaking of peace is an event. You can report on it. You can report on it. And so we come back and we just think from a systems perspective again, or into cause and effect, like an event, something really easy to report on, it's something immediate, and it'll have a cause which we can point to, good guy, bad guy, for example. Whereas the system, it's much more complex actually be able to sort of understand the relationships and flows. You can't put it into a uh, six-word headline which grabs. Exactly. So, but there's a lot, a lot of, but there's lots of positive things happening out there, like in the world. So, but the question is, how do we actually get them to the forefront of our consciousness? And how do we as human beings be more conscious as well and that's not easy that's not easy we all know sort of the, where our neurological tracks are wired up in certain ways and changing them it's not easy it's self-development it's not an easy process but we don't go down the streets anymore and see heads on spikes yeah we went back to prehistoric age something like 30 percent of people died violently okay could have been in accidents could have been fighting other tribes, could it be by animals? So we are slowly, progressively over time becoming more peaceful. But badly, very, very big gaps sometimes in between. Yeah, and I very much appreciate your, it's almost a call to action or call to consciousness of where our focus is. And you're providing a framework that really provides two things. One, a framework of where one can focus to build positive peace, the eight pillars, which is a very concrete you know, way of looking at things that could be supported. And also looking at, which I look at from the way we are often wired is to look at the negative things or look at the things that may be a threat because we're trying to avoid them. Yet those, that's the exact thing that keeps you in that spiral loop of negativity instead of looking at as much as you can, wait a minute, what we focus on can also grow. So let's just keep it over here, even though we might get the tension of pulling back this way. Um, and your frameworks provide that because your data shows that it's not as dire as one might think. There's positive movement and the systems are adjusting. 
in positive ways. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So if we look at positive peace, more countries have improved in positive peace than deteriorated in the last decade. So that's good news. It's just the attitudes domain itself has deteriorated. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us here on the Think Peace podcast and helping us understand positive peace and the systems approach and also how small steps and keeping on that path um, can get us to um, a more peaceful society. Thank you very much. Right. Oh, thanks for having us on the show, Colette. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Great interview. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. And thank you to those who make this podcast possible, the Mary Hope Foundation and our amazing senior producer, Cam Kasser. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes and news. And remember to think peace.